All right, KISS Army, welcome to the KISS FAQ podcast. Thank you for letting us into your head. I hope we don't do any damage. This is a KISS-related podcast by the board for the board. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to episode 37 of the KISS FAQ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for returning, Daniel, as we's on the board. Good to see you again. Ken, as always, 69th Blizzard, and Marcus Almighty, Mark. Thank you very much, Mark. I know you've had a challenging week this week. Yeah, um, this last Tuesday, my father suffered a stroke, and um, fortunately for us, I mean, at first it looked kind of grim, it didn't look like he was going to pull out of it, but much to all of our surprise, uh, the next day he actually woke up, and when the nurses spoke to him, he knew who he, who he was, where he was. He recognized all of us, and not only were the nurses surprised, I mean, it was we were very shocked that he seems to be pulling through, and as of today, I went to the hospital just before I came back to do this, and he's up and eating, and I don't know, for an 82-year-old man who already had a triple bypass, he's like superhuman, and I, I want to just dedicate our show today to my dad and, and hopes that he gets well and fully recovers soon. Here, here, you know. You know, send my best wishes, my positive vibes to him and to your family as well. It's really tough. We've got a family member who had a stroke a few years ago and did not um, get back to any semblance of uh, normality. So that must be really tough. But, you know, positive thoughts for you. Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. Well, let's jump into KISS today. Um, we've got, we don't usually do a whole bunch of news, but there's some cool stuff happening around um, this week. And, of course, we're recording this on Friday the 18th, which is, of course, the 37th anniversary of the Kiss solo albums. So later today, boom, 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 this book will be available unless I get a last-minute phone call from someone. So uh, I'm just holding off pulling the trigger right now in case that phone call does happen. And it's not a negative. It would be a good, it would be a positive. But um, expect that to be available by the end of the day. And it grew from original... Uh, page count up to like 543 pages all told so interviews features shit like that minutia that hopefully kiss fans will eat up so enough about me another thing that's come out this week frelly's comet cd live in milwaukee 1987 it's the full fm broadcast it's an unofficial uh release i picked this up on amazon uk uh really good very early um first tour in 87 so it's billy ward on drums john regan on bass todd howarth um very very good performance and it's got love me right on it which is one of my favorite songs off that album so um some great performances of the kiss and solo album stuff what else is new d snyder that one keeps going and our friends at three sides of the coin have got d snyder on their podcast for their next episode the uh, video-on-demand version is available right now. Go over to Three Sides of the Coin on Facebook or .com, their website, and you can pay to play today for $0.99 cents and get an early view, or you can wait to watch it for free next week on Spreaker and YouTube. And I'm going to wait because I want people to argue about what they haven't even seen or heard yet. That's more entertaining. <laughs> and then I'll see it next week. So that that's a really cool one. So congratulations to those guys for scoring D. Let's get his side of the story and see what he has to say about this whole Ferrari that's out there. Should be entertaining. D, D's a smart guy. Uh, but yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to say that any of these rock stars are mature. He may have some smarts, but no maturity. So it should be real fun. Um, other news. 
Um, and I got to check the link on this one because I can't remember it. Vintage Vinyl News is reporting that Paul Stanley Soul Station performance was filmed for a DVD release. Yeah, I saw I saw also a uh, link on his uh, Twitter saying that he was at the studio checking the audio and checking the, the, the video and that they're going to do a release of it. So Speak of the that devil. Was right from his Twitter. That's the phone call I was talking about. Um, Will they be doing overdubs? Uh, I would think they need to do a lot of work on it. Um, but I'm also looking at the set list now. You know, Temptations, Delphonics, Miracles... Uh, stylistics, Al Green. I mean, it's it's, it's all very generic R and B soul, uh, which is a great introduction for people who aren't familiar with that genre. Um, nothing particular. I don't find anything particularly exciting in there, um, and I can't stand the Jackson Five cover. But that's just me. Horses for courses. So we'll see if that actually does happen. And I think the last thing to mention is go over to the FAQ board or anywhere. If you've had your head under a rock, you may not have heard that a copy of Van Halen performing all the way at Pasadena High School in April 1975. So that's six months after the release of Hotter Than Hell has surfaced. It's not the fantastic soundboard quality, but it is good enough to hear Van Halen's doing their Van Halen-style background vocals on that song, and that's a really pretty deep cut even back then, I guess, to be putting out. And, they, and Van Halen did a few covers. I, I know they did Firehouse and Rock and Roll All Night. So uh, just to have that one service in the last few days. Entertaining shit, which we can't do a Kiss podcast and not mention some of this stuff. So, in a, in Actually, a, Shouldn't you mention the fact that you were on the, the podcast? You, you showed up on the D. Schneider episode there? Holy shit, I forgot about that. Thank you. Yeah, Ken and BJ, forgive me for that. Um... Ken, BJ, and I did a crossover podcast, or podcast, pardon me, for the D. Snyder, Paul Stanley deathmatch. So I had a great time talking with both Ken and BJ. Ken is a true gentleman, and BJ's really fun to chat with. You know, So we had a good little roundtable of initial impressions on the D. Snyder thing. So go over to podcast.com and check out theirs. So there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff going on out there. Um, now, stuff that doesn't involve me is what we're actually going to talk about in episode 37, and it is this bad boy. And I, I'm getting all moist just holding this record. <laughs> it's taking me back to 1985 when oh, I became a fan. So, for everyone who just uh, stopped playing this podcast um, and is shaking their head or looking at me like I'm in a village idiot, um, Asylum was my first Kiss album. It came out September 16th, 1985. I didn't know that at the time, as it was only because of the Tears Are Falling video that uh, I became aware of the band. So, we're going to dedicate the rest of this episode, now that I've monologued for something like seven minutes, uh, to talking about Asylum. Um, and I, I think I'm going to start with Daniel on this. But before we talk about you know much about the album itself, let's, let's start with this with one question. Do KISS fans listen with their eyes? Is this cover the whole problem why this album is not accepted as a classic or as a quality KISS album? And Ken is just going to have a blast with this later, I can tell. He's just getting ready to to respond to that. So, Art, does this album get an unfair reception because of its artwork? And, and what are your thoughts on that, Daniel? Well, I don't 
don't think it's particularly the, the, the artwork. I, I think it's more the uh, the stage uh, wear, so to speak, the way they looked, uh, the glitter, the glamour, the Bon Jovi look. Well, it was even worse than Bon Jovi. And it was such a break from uh, the two previous tours when they at least kept some sort of dignity uh, with those uh, animal furs and stuff. But uh, I think that's the biggest problem. I, I can't speak for myself, but I think uh, I don't have a real big problem with the, the album cover. I think it's kind of, you know, what's that famous uh, American artist that did those cans? What's uh, Warhol. Yeah. I guess that was the inspiration, at least to some extent. And I think it could have been a lot worse. Just think about it if they would have put Gene in his, you know, grandma's dress on the cover trying to look sexy. I mean, that would have been, that would have been the death of this album. So I think the album cover is actually sort of a bless in disguise, a blessing in disguise since uh, we don't see a lot of them. So... Uh, and it's sort of a, you know, kind of a, they pay homage to the 78 solo albums, yeah? That's a bit worse, I think, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, with, with the colors, they, they, they gave every car the Peter Chris color and, and you know, Bruce got Ace Freely color. So I think they got away with it to some extent, but it's not a good cover, I would say, but hell, uh, you, you know, half of Kiss's covers album covers are really, really not that good. Uh, Animal Eyes, uh, didn't work. Uh, Crazy Nights, ooh, what a brilliant idea with the mirror. Oh, so dumb before. And Hot in the Shade, we shouldn't even mention that one. Yeah, so so it kind of moves into a period when they're less than inspiring. And, yeah. and that's something that I've got kind of in the back of my mind here. This is the first time that they really... I guess commit sacrilege. They appropriate the aura colors that are associated with Ace for Bruce and Peter's green with Eric Carr. Is that the real reason why Kiss fans don't like the the cover? Mark, what are your thoughts on it? Well, um, I don't know. I mean, I guess from uh, from that standpoint, I think the hardcore fans would have probably been a bit touched by that whole thing happening there with them using those colors with the new people but i'm guessing that the hardcore fans probably didn't like the cover so much but i'm thinking that when they did this kiss is in that period now when they're trying to attract new fans i think into the into it right so i'm thinking that they're trying to trying to approach more yeah exactly trying to approach more those people rather than worrying about their hardcore base and i mean around that time you know, there were a lot of albums that came out around that time. I mean, Motley Crue's Theater of Pain came out June 21st. This record came out, obviously, September 16th in 85. But Motley Crue's Theater of Pain was June 21st. Rats' Invasion of Privacy was June 13th of the same year. And all those guys were kind of in that same kind of makeup, getting, getting dressed up like that. So I think they were, again, just trying to follow trends in this period, hence why they made that kind of a decision with their with their makeup and with their kind of clothing that they had at the time because they wanted to you know they wanted to be hip they wanted to be in with the crowd and catch the new young audience in with them musically i think that the record is pretty good i guess we'll get into that more detail as we go but i mean if it's just based on the artwork yeah people might have had some issue with it but i think they were just trying to snag people in i mean 
the uh, two years later you'd have poison with look what the cat dragged in which kind of propelled it even further with the whole makeup thing so it's not like they went too overboard i mean poison pushed it to the next level but you know that record went huge for poison so i mean the makeup obviously doesn't hurt too much in that area it's just whether it was whether it was right for a kiss or not that's the question yeah 1985 all these bands looked the same uh, i mean Dokken, wasp even yeah. was even wasp had put away the raw meat and had gone, glammed themselves up, and Chris Holmes was looking all purdy. Um, and then, of course, Cinderella is coming out at the, the, this, the tail end of this as well. So, Ken, voice of reason. Well, first of all, um, I don't think KISS fans listen with their eyes. Um, though, going in, I remember going into Tower Records to buy this, this album and seeing that album cover for the first time. It was kind of... I don't know, it was a shocking kind of thing to me, this close-ups of the, the faces, you know. Um, I just didn't, I didn't get it. I thought it, the best thing about it was the colors that they brought back from the solo albums, you know, the purple and the red and the green and blue. Um, so that was okay. I think at the time, it didn't matter, like we said, like you guys said, the everyone was doing the same thing at, the, at that time. The artwork was like that at the time. So it wasn't, that big of a deal but for me looking back at it now i reflect more bad badly on it on that artwork than uh than i used to when i first got it um it doesn't mean i, I don't know if it, it bothers or messes with my review of the music within it but uh i would have this is what i would have chosen for the artwork i would have chosen the creatures of the night artwork they did for the re-release of the Creatures of the Night with yeah. the Unmasked. That would have been a, a good, solid album cover uh, rather than the one they they chose. Um, I think that would have worked a lot better along with the music. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because obviously those those were June '85. I mean, I, I don't think they were actually taken there, but that's when the uh, the reissue came out, exactly. and, and that's that's a really good kind of tough. Um, kind of photo but going off the asylum here we've got four faces on the cover of an album and that's the same as kiss 74 is the four faces on the cover is the same as dynasty four faces on the cover and of course dynasty was supposed to have been the straitjacket photo shoot um that they abandoned you're calling an album asylum why didn't they do the straitjackets you know and and reboot that 1979 concept it, it, it just kind of boggles the mind. Here you have an album called Asylum, and they were referring to it, I think, in, in some of the press before the album came out as Out of the Asylum. So why don't you have a theme that's built on the album title? The art seems to have nothing to do, no connection with the album title. And and think that's the only thing that bothers me. I think it's a great album. I like it to this day. I think it stands out. I remember going into Kmart. I found that album really quickly because of the cover. You know, compared to everything else, and all the album covers at the time were starting to get, I guess, more and more outrageous. Um, I mean, look at Blackie Lawless on uh, Inside the Electric uh, Electric Circus album. You know, that's and Motley Crue. You know, Theater of Pain is the other side. You know, with just the masks. So, you know, I like it, but um, I think it could have made more sense. Any other thoughts on album design? Um, or should we jump into um, your 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 first encounter encounter with Asylum, 
Daniel? Well, uh, for me, it was uh, one of my first albums. You know, back in the day, it was. Uh, I remember hearing Heavens on Fire. I guess this was in 1985, and uh, uh, I was hooked immediately. I remember listening to a black tape in a tent with a friend. He said, you just have to listen to this, man. This is the best you'll ever hear. And to this day, that song is one of my favorites. So uh, that was the, the, the initial step. And then after that, I just begged my mom, I need a Kiss album, please, for my birthday. And she bought, uh, at the time, Kiss was actually pretty popular in Sweden, so, yeah, in the mid-80s. And uh, uh, so she bought me Animalize and Asylum. I got them both at the same time. And the only cassette I had before that was actually Twisted Sister. So now my old heroes, uh, they have become a grumpy old men and slug it out on the internet. So it's kind of sad. But uh, um, so I remember listening to Asylum. But before I got the cassette, uh, the video was to some extent a, a hit in Sweden. So. Uh, I remember watching that and taping, you know, using like a boombox towards the television, trying to tape the the, the, uh, the sound. And uh, I just remember thinking that video was the coolest I'd ever seen. Which I have to keep in mind, I wasn't even 10 years old. So, uh, But uh, to this day when I see it, you know, it's some sort of nostalgia thing. When I see that video, it's still gets to me somehow. I, I, I kind of like it. The other two, however, I, I, I don't care too much about, you know, who wants to be lonely and, uh, all night. But that um, was my first uh, first time I, I heard Asylum was the video and then I got the album. Ken, how about, how about you? How did you run into, well, I think you said that you went to Tower Records. Did you know the album was coming out and how engaged were you in Kiss at the time? Had, had you stayed current with like Animal Eyes, Lick It Up, and you knew the next one was coming? and Or was it you were just in the store I, and who? I stayed, yeah, I stayed current since 77. <laughs> missed, a, missed anything on Kiss. So uh, I remember either, the first thing I, I heard was the, uh, was... Tears Are Falling, uh, playing on the radio. Uh, I remember hearing it. They didn't say who it was, but I heard that I was doing something. I was in my room, and I was just playing the radio, and I heard this, and I was like, that sounds, that sounds like Paul Stanley. And then, so <laughs> I said, this is pretty good. <laughs> I said, is this Kiss? And uh, so I said, yeah, it's got to be Kiss. And then they said it was Kiss afterwards, I think. Um, and so I thought, man, that's good. So I knew that was coming out soon. I think I might have saw something in the one of the magazines uh, for release dates. I used to call. I used to bother the record stores too. You know, do you know the release date for this next Kiss album or whatever? And they would know sometimes, and sometimes they wouldn't. <laughs> and some, and sometimes it would be click, right? Right, right. Sometimes they you know go away. Um, so. Uh, I do remember going the, the, the first day it came out uh, as probably after I think it probably went either at lunchtime during work or after work or something like that and picked it up uh, so that was when I first uh, got it it was a radio though that I heard the first thing from Silent Mark how about you well um, I remember actually distinctly when I heard this the first time um, in high school 
in grade 10, I used to take a guitar class. And I used to take it because at that point I thought it was an easy credit because I'd already been playing guitar and I was way ahead of what they were doing at that point. But um, I remember sitting in the class and one of my friends brought in Asylum on cassette. And our music teacher at the time, because we had it at home room, used to always let us play music at the beginning of the class. So he would bring in, he brought in the tape and the teacher said, yeah, if you want to put it in, let's check it out. And I remember hearing King of the King of the Mountain the first time and I was like, wow, like I remember just hearing that just blasting in the music room and thinking, this is really cool because I mean, I, I had been caught up with Kiss. I mean, my first Kiss record had been Alive that my sister got. I think I mentioned that a few episodes ago that I got for Christmas and uh, she also had gotten Animalized before, but I didn't really hear it much in the house at that point. I just was familiar with the album itself. But uh, that record though, Asylum. I remember when I first heard it in the music class, it, was, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I, I just really, really loved King of the Mountain. It's still one of my favorite songs off that record. I mean, that whole record to me is just great. I mean, there's only maybe one or two songs I don't like off of it too much, but that record is my favorite Kiss Out of Makeup record, hands down. I mean, this is why I'm obviously doing this episode with you guys, but uh, it's I don't know, I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with it, in my opinion. And I, I, like I said, I remember when I just heard it, it just made such a big impact. I mean, the rest of that class, I was just like, my head was in the clouds just remembering these huge drums and the songs. It was just, I just loved it. Yeah, you, you, you talk about school. I remember having competition in school back in 85 when we brought each uh, student could bring a song into the competition and you voted. And this just tells you a little bit about how popular Kiss was. Me and my best friend, we fought who was going to be bringing Heavens on Fire. And I was a little bit taller than him. I'm pretty tall, you know, I'm like six foot three. So so I won. I just beat him a little bit. And then I, 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 so, so, so I brought Heavens on Fire and he had to bring Tears Are Falling. And I remember Heavens on Fire won. And in second place, Tears Are Falling. So that's, you know, we were like 10 years old or something. Yeah, but uh, Kiss was really big over here uh, in the mid '80s. Cool. So 1985. I'm living in uh, Binghamton, New York. That's upstate. Um, I can't say Kiss was particularly big, or I wasn't really noticing it because at that time, my musical, uh, the shit I was listening to, I think, out of the heavy metal realm, I only had two things. I had Joan Jett's "I Love Rock and Roll" 45, and I had Quiet Riot "Metal Health." And that was it for heavy metal. Well, actually, no, I had uh, ACDC's If You Want Blood, You Got It, and, and Zeppelin IV, which an aunt had sent me from England. But the rest of my music that I kind of listened to was Beatles, you know, Rubber Soul, Sgt. Pepper's The Magic of Mystery Tour, the three tapes I had, uh, John Lennon, and Men at Work, <laughs> Business as Usual, which remains... Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> it remains one of my all-time favorites, so... Um, I, I wasn't exactly a metalhead, but we had MTV, and I spent a lot of time watching MTV. I loved Twisted Sisters videos. I loved Rats videos. I was really starting to get into rock and roll. Um, I remember smoking in the boys' room when it came out, and I loved that. You know, I didn't know anything about Motley Crue. I didn't know that they were a much better band, the, the two albums before that one. I thought Smoking in the Boys' Room was a really catchy video, and it was engaging. And then Kisses, Tears Are Falling comes along, and it caught my attention. 
you know, I didn't know anything about how they make videos. I didn't know what the purpose was. I just see these guys playing in this like mountainous uh, kind of jungle setting, you know, colorful outfits, cool music. And it's a really good song. So it caught my attention. Later on in the year, I think oh, All Night comes out and uh, Who Wants to Be Lonely? So my birthday that year, went down to the store, bought myself Asylum and Theater of Pain. And, you know, that, that engaged me. It kept me for both bands, um, remain a fan of them to these, this day. So, you know, it, it's kind of cool that I got on board with probably an album. I don't think we can compare Asylum or we're going to compare Asylum with Rock and Roll Over in terms of quality, in terms of being a classic. No one in their right mind would call it that. But it's still, for the period, um, a damn good album. So, you know, let's talk about some of the music. Um, my first introduction really to kiss other than hearing stuff in like 79 at talent shows, you know, is tears are falling. And then I buy the cassette and King of the mountain. Um, let's talk about bombastic opening tracks. I say that King of the mountain is one of the all time greatest kiss opening tracks simply because of Eric Carr's bombastic drums, the anthem. It's everything I expect Paul Stanley to be singing, you know, I'm the king of the mountain. I can reach the top. So I love it. I think that just the message is positive. There's no, it's not about partying. It's about succeeding. You know, Paul Stanley, uh, you know, personal mentor. Daniel. Yeah. Um, king of the mountain to me is a top 10. So well, uh, I had it as number 11 when I, 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 you know, made that list a couple of episodes back. Uh, King on the Mountain was number 11, so it's almost in my top 10. Uh, and the thing I enjoy most about it uh, is uh, the fact that, uh, as you said, the drumming in that song is uh, excellent. Uh, and it's almost like if someone coached Eric Carr to, to play, because in some of the songs on Asylum, there's a problem with the drumming, I would say, but we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that later on. It's like half of the song, the drumming is great, you know, it's like, it's like a powerhouse, like John Bonham, very good playing, uh, and some of the songs are really, nothing happens, so, but King of the Mountain is, to me, I would say my favorite song of that album, maybe because Tears of Falling has been done almost to death, to somewhat, uh, but I would put King of the Mountain at the top. Uh, I really like that song. And um, the vocals are, like, amazing. So uh, it's unfortunate they didn't play it more than they did. I think they only played it for one or two shows on the tour. And, in fact, the problem with the tour, to me, was that they didn't play a lot of songs of Asylum. There were plenty to play, but they didn't. So uh, King of the Mountain... Wow, what a song. I, I, I love it to this day. Ken, if you heard Tears Are Falling on the radio, I guess, uh, like me, that would have been your next song from the album after you bought it, wouldn't it? That yeah, you heard. Yeah. So so what were your impressions when you were, you, you were hearing that for the first time? Oh, yeah, I, I loved it. The way it just you know, hit the, the drums in the beginning. All you're hearing is drums. And, um, and it just, you know, they're loud. And, it's probably the loudest since, you know, probably Creatures. Um, but not quite as loud as Creatures, but uh, it's pretty loud. And, and that song is, is one of the, probably the one of the best 
Kiss lead off songs uh, for their albums. Uh, it's it ranks up there pretty high. Um, I have no problems with it. the only thing I have about this. I, I would have liked to have heard more bass in the songs. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I would have brought up the bass a little bit more. It's not it's, you. It's, it's Paul it's Stanley me. production. I, I don't know what it is. I think it's a little too low. I don't, I'm not hearing Gene enough or, or whoever. Or Jean, yeah, Jean. Or Jean. <laughs> um, so the imposters. Jean. Jean. So yeah, yeah. Uh, it's that was the first song, and that was a good good kickoff. Yeah, and I, I think the drums on this album these these are the last this is the last of the uh, the albums, isn't it? That had Michael James Jackson came in just for the drums on it, and then left Paul to his devices uh, for the rest of the production. So, you know, it, it's kind of the last of a trilogy um, in this period. Mark. Yes. Well, I mean, I think it's pretty well known how by now how I feel about King of the Mountains, one of my favorite songs off this record, hands down for sure. And I mean, once again, we we're talking about Eric Carr and his bombastic drumming. And I mean, with Eric, I kind of understand uh, what Daniel's talking about with how sometimes he comes in and he's like on fire and other times it's like he's just falling asleep a bit behind a drum kit. But I mean, it's, I think it's mainly because Eric Carr seemed to have this thing where he had two gears. One where he was like, like somebody came in from behind and popped an adrenaline needle in his buttocks and he started going bananas and double kicking, going crazy and he was going all over the place. And then other times it's like you kind of envision Gene coming up to him and saying, Okay, Eric, uh, for this song, we want to kind of keep it kind of simple for my song. And then for him, he's probably just like, you know, keeping a straight beat. And yeah, and that to him yeah. seems to be the, the whole thing with that, I think. Mark, so, I think it's a great point that you say that Gene comes in and says, because it's mostly on Gene's songs. Yeah, I mean, not, it's like a drum machine almost on some of the songs. Exactly. So, I mean, that's one of the things I think that... And so it's not, I, don't, I wouldn't put that so much as a blame for Eric. I think it's mainly Paul and Gene when they sometimes decide to come in and take over and say, you know, I think you're maybe doing a little too much here, Eric. You know, maybe we need to tone it down here because, I mean, he obviously has the ability and the skills to do much more on songs. And in some of the songs, obviously, they thought it suited it better than in the others, right? But, uh, you know, the... What Ken also said too with the bass guitar, I, I agree. I think that there should be should have been a little bit more bass present in it, and uh, you know he th those albums in those periods were not exactly known to be very bass heavy along the board too. I mean Rat and Motley Crue and all those bands are all victim of not having any sort of real bottom end present in it. It was a lot of loud guitars and a lot of drums with really weird triggered snare drums and stuff like that right but um you know again no, i think it's it's good that julian brought up the fact about you know michael james jackson and these people who got involved with stuff to and again dave whitman is also credited at electric lady studios to work on this and i've always thought that he was a unsung hero as far as production goes because a lot of the stuff that he touched i usually liked in terms of like his drum tones and his guitar stuff so it's Whenever he's involved, I usually like those records. So, all right, let's get into any way you slice it. And wasn't that the B side of Tears Are Falling? Uh, I think so. No idea. No, I can't remember. So, you know, Howard Rice. I, I have no idea who the hell Howard Rice is or how it fits into the picture of things. And I'm going to say this song is one of the fillers on the album for me. I do not get into it at all. 
Um, what's everyone Googling Howard Rice? <laughs> Howard Rice was a friend of, uh, like, a neighbor to Diana Ross or Cher or something. That, Actually, that may well have been. Um, that Gene went over and ate, they, like, planned a few songs together. Yeah. The pool boy. <laughs> so, I don't like any way you slice it. It doesn't do anything for me. Um, it's it's just one of those songs that doesn't really go anywhere either. You know, it doesn't seem to have any ebbs or flows or valleys or mountains. It's just kind of blah, flatline for me. And Gina tried to give this song to Heavy Patton a few years before, so it's hardly surprising. Um, what's your guys' take on this song, Mark? Well, um, again, I mean, after hearing something like King of the Mountain, to hear any way you slice it, it was a little bit of a, I wouldn't say a letdown, but it, it wasn't, it obviously wasn't anywhere near as strong as the, the first song. I mean, um, the riff starts out good, I thought. I thought when I first heard it, I was like, okay, yeah. this sounds promising, you know, it's going to go somewhere. But then, in typical Gene style he his songs are a little bit more predictable i find like you almost know what's coming up next his lyrics you know there's going to be something tacky or cheesy in there somewhere in it too and the thing that i kind of found odd about his about this song as well is why he tagged in that sort of bluesy thing at the end that it's not your mommy's little daughter that whole thing at the end it's like that's been so done i mean you know they could have did without that ending part, I thought, and it still would have been decent, I guess. But why put that in? It's just, it almost shows that, you know, this is a color by number song, and just to prove my point, I'm going to tag this in at the end, you know? Probably for the same reason that the rest of the lyrics in this just seem to be like the little phrases Gene's thought of and written down in a book over 20 <laughs> years, you know? Yeah, I'm a wolf in the corner. Okay, I'm going to use that one. Oh, wait, no, we got Keep It Any Longer rhymes. Okay, we're going to throw that one in. This is like the blender song of yeah. genisms thrown into one freaking mess. Daniel. Well, well, actually, I, I love that uh, the riff, uh, of course, but as you say, uh, it really doesn't go anywhere. But uh, there's actually a quite good demo of this song. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've heard it. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it's a crazy tempo, it's a really high tempo, uh, so I think at least uh, they, 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 uh, it's better on the album, but uh, to me, I just have to say, this is one of the few albums from the 80s when I can listen to every Gene song and enjoy it. So I, would, I wouldn't say that this is a bad song, I think it's better than I would say all of his songs on the previous album to me, uh, you know, like Burn, Bitch, Burn, and Loneliness, The Hunter, Murder in High Heels. T- to me, that, those are a few of the most terrible songs I've ever heard. I mean, even when I was nine years old, I skipped them. Uh, so uh, I'd say I would give it like a six or an, almost a seven. Yeah, but when you're comparing it to the stuff on Animalize, it doesn't take much for Gene to write a better song than that crap. Um, and I like Murder in High Heels, but the rest of it, um, yeah. You know, I, I'm going to agree with you that it is certainly better than a lot of his previous output. And I'll include a couple of songs on uh, Lick It Up as well. Ken? Yeah, well, I have to agree with you guys. First of all, though, the uh, the, the riff... 
great riff. I, I wrote that down in my notes. I said it's just a great riff. But what happens is, I think, yeah, Gene's songs are sometimes not completely finished. You can't finish the song. He has a good start to it, and then he just can't finish it. The, the chorus is what maybe brings down the song on this. You would kind of, lots of times the chorus is supposed to be the next level to bring it up above the, you know, the, the verses and the rest of the song. But uh, yeah, the riff is great. Uh, I wrote down, yeah, it's pretty good that, you know, I said cheesy lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> which is typical. Yeah, it's Everyone kiss. Said that. And uh, I, I wrote down the words uh, hornet's nest. <laughs> it's a, right there. It's like, you know, what Love. the heck is he thinking? But uh, yeah, I mean, I like the song. It's not, it's not my favorite of his on the album, but I agree with Daniel that uh, all of Gene's songs are better on this versus Animalize. I think Animalize was his low point for songwriting. Yeah, I, I want to go back and check Animalize in a second for the co-writes on Gene's songs because obviously he's got co-writers on most of the stuff on, on this album, so I'm, I'm wondering. I can't but remember. It's interesting, though. We mentioned the whole thing with uh, Howard Rice, and I just really quickly looked up here on, di on the all music thing and... If you, uh, when I kind of show it here, um, I don't know if you guys can even see that, but nope. Uh, basically, it says here that he did stuff. He's a writer with uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Patty Labelle, po June Pointer, and the Undisputed Truth. But he has a writing credit with Keel for the Right to Rock, <laughs> and he also has, and it also says Asylum Kiss composer. So I'm guessing. What Daniel said is probably right. I mean, he's probably a neighbor or something nearby. Knew that he wrote songs with somebody and he just got involved somehow. Yeah, the right to rock's the same period as this. So, and I think yeah, that, that wasn't. We just, have, we just have to address the drums in this song. First, when you hear King of the Mountain, you think, well, every car has really found, you know, like the thing, how to play like a Kiss song. And then you come to to uh, Anyway You Slice, it's, and it's just like a regular beat through the whole song. Yeah. So, so damn boring, he could have done something with that. But maybe it's like Mark was saying, that Gene said, well, don't get fancy, you know, this is a simple song. And yeah. it's kind of a simple song, but you can always, you know, like, uh, give it a new uh, nuance or something with, with the drums. So uh, uh, I was really disappointed when I compared the drums uh, from, from the first track to the second. Or Gene might have been busy with some Eric Carr reference reels of drums of okay bass hi-hat snare bass hi-hat snare you know and cut cut with with, with some tape all right let's go in and you know i don't skip the song when it comes on you know it's not that bad it's not like oh. stuff off like animalizer crazy nights where i do skip or filter it out of the playlist we gotta get I into skip the next one either hmm you don't skip the next one either. Hell no. <laughs> Who wants to be lonely? And this is one of my all-time favorite Kiss power ballads. Um, Give Me This and A Million to One, I think, are just two of the most exquisite um, pieces of music in that style ever. Mm -hmm. And I love the video. Um, kind of Paul sauntering down the, you know... <laughs> And I, I can't do it while sitting down, but, you know, j just the whole thing, the flames, the, the video I love, um, did from day one, love the song. And, you know, I, I'm not going to go into any technical details about it other than it's one of those songs that I just like um, and adore. Ken? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's really not, not much wrong with this song. It's a, 
a great song. Um, one of Paul Stanley's better songs uh, that he's written around that time period. And uh, so I, ha I have no problem with it. It's a, it's a, it's just a great song. That's a great. That's a great video. Um, you know, that's... <laughs> it's not a great video. You're crazy. Come on, the girls. To a fourteen, to my fourteen-year-old mind. Jeez, that you could, yeah. Oh, Bruce, Bruce falling backwards, and wasn't it? It's not even okay. I think. Well, we can agree on disagreeing on that one. Right, but girls. I hate those two videos they did after Tears Are Falling. Girls. I ranked them as two of the worst ever in history, and Gene looking like, well, come here, baby. I'm so cool and sexy, and you look like. You know, uh, no, I don't like it. Wait, but the, wasn't it the girl falling into the into the swimming pool? It was Bruce. Uh, it was another video. Oh, there were girls. That 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 that, that, that trumps any artistic critic uh, criticisms <laughs> of the song whatsoever. And uh, I, I love I love this quote that Paul has. Uh, you know, the the film the video was censored, and he says it's sometimes what people think they see. That makes something dirty. I can't imagine for the life of me what's so weird about a hose shooting water all over a girl. You're not going to see a Tijuana party or anything with a donkey and a girl named Maria. So, always like that quote about the video. Um, Mark, your thoughts on the song? Well, just just like you, this is one of my favorite songs off this record. I mean, speaking more from an audio perspective than a video perspective, um, I, re I really, really think this song is great. I mean, one of the big surprises that I had years later as I became more involved in learning about production and stuff like that was the fact that, obviously, the Jean Beauvoir guy not only was writing the song with those guys, but he obviously played bass guitar on this song as well. Um but the but the bass and drum playing in this, while it's not complicated playing by Eric Carr, I think him and Gene they're kind of put together a good rhythm section. There's a really good I steady agree. beat there that they do together with it. That whole dun 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 dun. Yeah, it's yeah. really really solid, and I think it gets your head moving and you're bopping along to it. And I think Paul's vocals are really strong. Like you know maybe the content is just typical of that sort of you know style, but. It's really good. I think the guitars are really melodic. There's some nice picking out parts with the distorted guitars. It sounds are, it's really good. It's really strong. I agree with you. Like a million to one in this song are really, really good for that sort of uh, style of music. I mean, but once again, if we if we if we're just gonna talk for a second about the video, I mean, when I was young too, I guess I was kind of in Julian's boat where I was like, yeah, you know, there's girls and there's all kinds of innuendo going on in here, so it probably caught my attention. But I mean, now. As you get older, you watch it now, and you kind of want to hide your head in shame, like thinking, "What are these guys thinking when they did this?" Right? But you know, it's like you said, to each his own. I mean, maybe, maybe for Julian, it was such an impactful part of his life, and that video included, that maybe it, it, it'll never, nothing will be wrong with it. You know, I mean. I led a sheltered experience, and who wants to be lonely was the high point of my 14-year-old life. <laughs> That's where you learned about the birds and the bees. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's continue. <laughs> All right, end of, end of trial by fire. And again, I think Gene... Yeah, can I say what I, what I think about who wants to be lonely? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I... Uh, uh, to me, I would give it an 8 out of 10, one of my favorites. 
Uh, and I, Mark, you made a great point with, with a drum bass bass thing, not bass. Now, now I'm back in Tom Snyder interview. Uh, <laughs> bass, bass and uh, drums works really work really good in in that song. And to me, it's maybe my third favorite favorite from the album. Uh, so uh, I agree with you guys. That's a great song, but not a great video. No way in hell. <laughs> you must be out of your mind. Well, that, I've been told that before. So, Trial by Fire, which uh, I think is better than any way you slice it uh, for jeans. Again, it's chock full of the kind of uh, corny cliches or little phrases, but I think it works better as a song. And obviously, it's got a Bruce co-write on it. And I think that's kind of one of the key things now looking back at this album is how much latitude and input Bruce had coming in on what was his first album. Obviously, he'd only really officially been in the band from December 84, even though he'd uh, you know, had some involvement in the studio of the previous album. And he's got just some really solid playing on this. And, you know, Trial by Fire, I know it isn't one of the kind of the standout tracks on the album, but for me, it's one of the underdogs. It's just a solid piece of rock music. Nothing spectacularly flashy. It's just good in where it appears on the album. You know, you're coming to the end of side one, you're kind of taking it you know, settling down. Um, great song. And I actually like Gene's lyrics in this much better than any way he slides it because he doesn't overdo it. It seems to have more purpose um, than just throwing the kitchen sink in. Ken? Yeah, this is one, this is my favorite Gene Simmons song off the album. Um, by far. I think it's, it's one of his better songs in the 80s. Um, and, uh, I, you know, the lyrics, it's a lift me up kind of song. So, uh, I don't know, nothing, all I wrote down is, you know, like it, really, because I do like it a lot. I don't have any problems with it. Every time I listen to it, I never skip it. It's, uh, the whole thing works for me. It's, yeah, like you said, Julian, it's nothing flashy about it. It's just a good darn rock song. Yeah, it's like Gene Simmons sat down and said, I'm going to write a Paul Stanley anthem today. You know, and right. this is Gene being positive, you know. Daniel. Exactly. Uh, I would just uh, have to agree with what you said, uh, Ken. Good lyrics for once. Uh, for, from Gene, I would say. Uh, yeah, I like the lyrics. It's not about banging someone all the time. Uh, instead, he's trying to have problems with the lights here at my <laughs> work. They go off all the time and... Pretty soon the alarm will go off as well, I guess. Wait a minute. Uh, yeah, uh, so I like it. I would give it like a, maybe a seven. Uh, uh, but once again, I would say, well, it's it's kind of a simple song, uh, kind of monotonous. But I would have liked something more from Mary Carr on this one, adding some sort of flavor. It's almost the same all the way to me. So, so I would, that could have added... That could have like put it up in the upper. How do you say e echelon? Echelon. 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 Yeah, you know. Uh, so um, that's the part that's missing for me. But but other than that, I, I really like the song. Yeah, I mean, maybe the problem with Eric, you know, is King of the Mountain blew his load, you know, and then everything else is a little bit pedestrian after that until he recovers a little bit. Um, Mark. Well, I think, again, this is another example of, you know, 
I think Gene came in with a framework of an idea. You know, again, I think he kind of pulled back the reins a little bit with Eric. Maybe he did come in with something more, and he probably told told it tone it down. But I think what's interesting about this song, we kind of touched on Bruce Kulick and his guitar work on this. I think this is a great example, though, of what Bruce actually offers as a player in these kind of songs because. I think Gene came in with probably just, like I said, a structure of a framework with this song, but when he gave it to Bruce to work with him, he kind of added a little bit of that flash into it, like, when he has that riff, like, the dan and there, like, those little slides and that. I can't imagine Gene having that much detail in his riffs. He probably just came in with something basic, and he kind of just gave that guitar presence into it to make it more flashier and give it that more style that they were looking for, right? I think that's what, very important that what he adds to it, you know? Yeah, great point. I just have to add it. When you listen to Fits Like a Glove, the demo by, by Gene Simmons, it's like G, duh, uh, is it D, son? G or, or S and D, and it plays it all the time. Uh, but you hear that it fits like a glove. And then, like, I don't know if it was Vinnie Vincent or, or someone else came in, and it became, to me, one of my favorite songs of Lick It Up just by adding small parts uh, and you know making it like a real track so i think that's the way gene writes he uses chords most of the time yeah. and then hopefully he has someone he can collaborate with uh, who brings yeah. you know like the so i think that's yeah. bruce's bruce's strong point is that he's a very good guitar player and he can take yeah. a riff that's so basic but make it into something more i mean i think that's one of his strong points and i think that's maybe why they let him be included much as much as he is on these songs because he took something that was maybe a five and turned it to a seven you know what i mean and that's what the, the songs needed i mean like like you guys all said i think this is one of gene's better songs i don't have an issue with this song even lyrically i think it's pretty good and i've never skipped it when i listen to this record and uh yeah i think even his guitar solos and stuff like that bruce is really strong in this i mean it is his first record with the band right like technically for a full record so you know, when, you, when you're in that position, you want to make a good first impression with the fans. So I think that's why he kind of, you know, added in a little bit more flash and detail and tried to put his best work and best foot forward. Yeah, and that's why when we celebrate revenge for Bruce's outstanding guitar work, I think Asylum is actually outstanding guitar work by Bruce. And I think one of the comments that you made is Gene's writing style. Maybe he needs that foil, you know, lick it up. He had Vinnie Vincent coming in and, and transforming, you know, his clay of a song from a lump into a beautiful yeah. vase. Um, he didn't have that on Animalize as much. And 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 it showed, to be honest, with with the quality. And then he's got Bruce, but also to think that the band were allowing Bruce kind of the latitude to be a player and a participant after the nightmare of Vinny, because they they've said how unpleasant that ended. And then you have Animalize, where Mark St. John wasn't allowed any freedom, uh, any creativity. He was just used as a tool. You know, play this, play this this way. You know, and then they back away from that style. On what was a successful album that had sold 1.8 million copies, you know, in the in the U.S. purportedly at the time. So that to me makes it a fascinating album, and also songs like that really interesting. Let's go on to the next one, which you know marries up Paul Stanley with Bruce and Desmond Child. I'm alive, and again, this is one that does get you know quite a bit of uh, I, I guess heat of it not being a great song, but to me, it's Paul Stanley. 
writing a Gene Simmons song now. So I said on the last track, I thought that was Gene Simmons writing a Paul Stanley song, being a positive anthem. You know, this is just seems to me to be, you know, Paul going for innuendo in a style of writing that he doesn't usually do. You know, with the nurse innuendos and the doctor metaphors and all that sort of stuff. I love I'm Alive. You know. Of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Daniel. Take me, take me down a notch. Uh, well, I, I, I won't disagree with you uh, that much. I think it's a great song. Lyrically, there are some things not that good, maybe, but that's pretty common with Kiss. Uh, but uh, but uh, it's a good song. Still, I, I think this is the thing with Animal uh, Asylum, sorry, uh, that stands out for me. One of the few uh, albums uh, from the 80s, uh, well, if you don't count in Creatures of the Night, that has, you know, like a, how do you say, a high-low level. What do you say, like a, there are really no songs that are bad. No middle ground ones, like. Yeah, no middle ground, you know, no middle ground. So uh, I'd say uh, I'd give this like a six, maybe. Uh, not one of my favorite post-style tracks from the album, but still uh, I can listen to it and enjoy it. I think you better take a look in the Book of Love, man. <laughs> Ken? Uh, well, this one is one of my least favorites. Uh, on the, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, I know I wrote, a note, I wrote a note down saying, let's, have see, let's see how fast we can play. Um, uh, that's, it's just to me, it's just a, I mean, it's a full board song going on. You know, they're just going, rocking out. Uh, but I just, I just, I can't get into the song. I've never been able to really get into the song. It's okay, but again, it's 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 probably one of my least. It's not my least favorite. There's I think one other that's more, uh, you know, the one on the bottom of my list. But this one's uh, one of my least favorites on the album. And this I I might or might skip it. Uh, <laughs> I did depending, skip it the other day depending on mood. I listened to the whole thing. So if it's if it's them playing as fast as they can and upping the tempo, but it, I, I'll say this: at least it's a damn sight better than Boomerang. I agree with you, Mark. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, again, like like everybody else kind of said, it's not their worst song. It's not their best song. I mean, the, again, this is a very up tempo song. Um, it's interesting, you know. I find that at these tempos, though, Eric Carr really shines with his double kick and stuff like that. He's really good at that. Um, he could have probably did a little bit more stylistically at that tempo because he is good at doing it. I mean, you know, King of the Mountain, songs like that kind of prove that he can do good stuff at that tempo. But sometimes it seems like in this song, he didn't, they didn't maybe let him do as much flashy fills and stuff like that in here. They probably, again, in the style of the Gene Simmons idea that Paul was going for, they were probably saying, you know, let's do it fast, but don't go too over the top with the drumming, you know, because sometimes I think singers fear that if you go too crazy with the drums, it takes attention away from their singing somewhat, you know what I mean? And singers sometimes have that kind of approach to it, right? Which, you know, it's that's that's for other geniuses to debate, I think, whether that's right or wrong, right? But, uh, you know, um, but I think, again, Bruce did some great work with it. The thing I'm kind of surprised about is that Desmond Child is credited on this song, and it really doesn't, to me, when I look through the lyrics, doesn't seem like a really too much like a Desmond Child. I mean, he's always been, always been credited as being such a great 
songwriter and you know lyric person i mean it it doesn't seem like there's anything too like it doesn't seem like there's anything here that paul stanley couldn't have did on his own let's just put it that way you know right well you didn't see the first draft of the song no maybe not (laughs) but you know but i'm just saying that to me i mean you know there's 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 desmond child classics and then there's this i think right um but I, I still love this song. I mean, like I said, this is one of my favorite albums, so I don't skip these songs at all. And I mean, I, I think Bruce's guitar playing has always been a thing that's kind of saved it for me because I, I love, I'm a guitar player and I love his guitar playing and I always have and always will. So I think it's a, I think it's a pretty good song. Like, just like Daniel said, I, I'll keep it at like a six or seven as well. Okay. All right. Well, we've survived side one of Asylum. Let's flip but over. Not- Yes, by the way, was that the one that was called Round for Your Life uh, in the beginning, or which one was that? That was a different title for one of the songs. Yeah, the the one I'm thinking of is uh, Trial by Fire was, or I'm, yeah, Trial by Fire was uh, Live Fast, Die Young, or... Yeah, but there's another, uh, well, we can talk about that later. I think it was, uh, there was a different title for I'm Alive, or if it was one of the other songs, at least in Swedish press. You know, they listed the, the songs, and there was one, like, it was called Run For Your Life. Ooh, I'd like to yeah. see that. Yeah, yeah, I can, if you, I'll, I'll show you the link. But keep on, keep on going. All right, so let's let's flip the record over, side two, I'm back to when these things had sides. Uh, Love's a Deadly Weapon, one of the weirdest songs in this period, really, because this is, of course, a hybrid of two separate songs, Deadly Weapons, which was... One of the earliest Kiss demos recorded with Eric Carr on drums, dating back to the pre-Elder sessions when they were actually going to make a real rock and roll album. So you got Deadly Weapon, and then they married it up with a Wendy Williams track um, called Party off her Commander of Chaos album. So obviously Gene and the band all have a very, I guess, a lot of connections with Wendy Williams with that uh, um other album that they had done with her. So the Wow album, pardon me. So Love's a Deadly Weapon, I'm gonna say, is not one of my favorite Gene or Paul songs because it's one of those obscure Gene and Paul collaborations uh for the period. It doesn't work on any level. And you know, after I heard Party, you hear where Rod Swenson and West Beach's credit for this song comes in from. They just lifted melody, um for the song, and it, it's just too much of a mismatch where Deadly Weapons as a demo is a really cool song, and I prefer that. So, back in the day, I probably liked this enough, but after hearing the Deadly Weapons demo and hearing the Wendy o. Williams song separately, I just, I will skip this one, I think. Mark? You know what? You just took the words right out of my mouth about this one, because... I remember when I heard this, this is my least favorite song off the whole record. And I remember when I heard the the Deadly Weapons demo, I really, really liked that. I thought it had groove to it. Mm -hmm. It had a good pace to it. You know, and I thought it was really, really strong. I I thought that this was was great. And then when I heard this, I was like, "Mm, I see the similarity here, but there's something going on here like uh it, it just didn't have the same sort of deal to it you know and i think we have a abandoner here 
<laughs> <laughs> Might be the police knocking at the door again. The alarm's gone off. It's a silent yeah, one this probably. week. Dan yeah, Daniel, like come back. The song's not that bad. But uh, yeah, I, I think that, like, just like you said, I think this is a, a song that is just not my favorite one. I mean, on a, and on a record that I love as much as this, you know, one lemon out of the whole thing, I guess, is not that bad a thing if you think about it. But it, I just don't know why they didn't just try to stick with more of the original framework of it because it was so catchy. I thought that it would have, and it would have, and it wouldn't have stood out. I think I think it would have worked well on this record if it was in that original form. So I, I, I'd give it like a three out of 10, this song, but you know, it's, you know, I just, I was disappointed. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. So here's, here's, here's a good segue into go on YouTube and, you know, find the, the original demo for deadly weapons. If you haven't heard it. And if you're listening to a kid podcast, most most likely you have, uh, but also check out Wendy O. Williams party from commander and chaos. And you'll, you'll hear it all. Daniel, we were getting nervous there for a minute. Now, now we're nervous because we can't hear you. We still can't hear you, but you're brighter. I heard his microphone cut out there when he turned it off there, so maybe it's not... Now I'm back. I turned off the microphone so you didn't have to hear the alarm. Oh, I was right. Yeah, you know, yeah, after an hour, it seems to go off some kind of alarm here at work, so. All right. You have to go turn it off every time. All right, you're back and you're talking, so t- talk is down from Love's a Deadly Weapon. Love's a Deadly Weapon, yeah. And I kind of like it, you know, up-tempo, and nothing uh, fancy, but a good rock and roll track. Uh, I kind of like, uh, we've been talking about the drumming. Eric Carr is let loose on this one a little bit. He goes with a double bass through the song and so on. And I always like it when Gene do those uh, when he when he does the the high screams. You know, uh, isn't it in that song uh, at the end he does one of his you know like really high, high screams, yeah? <laughs> much like he does in fits like a glove. Um, you have to watch Detroit the first night, 1990. That's one of the few times he is able to do it live. Most of the time he just skips it. But that's a great one. So go, you guys listening to this, go to Detroit, June 1990, and uh, listen to that scream if it's like, no, it's great. So I, I would give it like, once again, six or seven or something. Ken? Yeah, I have to agree with you guys. Um, it's... My least favorite Gene song on the album. I mean, it's okay. It's it's decent, um, but I agree. I wrote down. Um, I said a uh, good good Gene vocal on it. His his vocals are really good. That's probably the best part of the song is his vocals, the performance. So uh, it's a good song. It's gets you through to the next you know track. So uh, it, it's good. I mean, it's not nothing horrible about it where I just have where I'd ha- have to skip it or something but it's a it's a decent song but it's not one of his better written songs so now we get it we've already talked about tears are falling I guess you know it it's a bit surprising that it kind of bombed on the singles charts in the states at the time only made 51 uh, did even worse in Canada and barely troubled 
the UK charts, but you know, tears are falling. The last, I think that's the last song Paul Stanley wrote on his own until, uh, what was it? Modern day Delilah or hell or hallelujah, you know, for a very long time. Uh, the last song he'd do. So do we have anything further to add to tears are falling or can we just get on with, you know, well, I just want to make one small little point about this song is that, uh, this song again is another, prime example of their confidence in Bruce Keeley because even he mentioned in one of his guitar instructional videos that he was surprised by how much time they allowed him to actually solo in this song. I mean, usually, you know, you're given like, you know, 15 seconds if you're lucky to do a solo and impress. And he said he was, he was surprised that they allotted him like 30 seconds almost of time to stretch out this longer than normal solo on it. So I just think it shows how much confidence they had. And that's the only thing I just wanted to add to that. And I have to add, it's the, by far the best soul on the album. It's a great melodic mm-hmm. solo. Uh, it kind of reminds me of Forever, the solo there. You know, uh, one of his masterpieces. Uh, I'd put that solo in my top five uh, all time. Uh, I really li- like that solo. And I think the fact that they've brought this song back in 2004 into the set, and most recently in Vegas, kind of speaks volumes for the respect or the esteem with which they hold the song. So, you know, it, it's obviously one that they include in their list of Kiss classics because that's all... Paul does. Well, yeah, and Paul's the boss. So, yeah, um, that's it. <laughs> simple as that. Secretly Cruel. I'm, I'm going to start off on this one and say, again, it's one of the Gene songs I've never been a gigantic fan of until Double Virgo did the tribute version and 70'd it up a notch you know once i once i saw the reinterpretation of that it gave me a new respect for the song because what someone could do with that um and maybe i'm being completely blinded by the creativity that that person put into the video um it's changed my opinion of the song a bit it it's actually not as bad as i thought it was at the time um you know and you know i'm going to give gene some respect in that his lyrics and metaphors in this at least make a lot more sense than than feeling like they came out of a blender of Gene Simmons' catchphrases. Ken, what's your thoughts on it? Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's another one where I wrote down. It's a you know good, a good riff, another good riff that uh, Gene has come up with. He just he has a knack for coming up with a good riff uh, for songs, at least you know to start out a song even. Um, and I think the lyrics were the only thing left. You know, they're okay for me, um, but uh, they're not too cheesy. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a good song. Uh, it's not my least favorite song. It's probably my third favorite from Gene on the, on the album, but uh, I, I like the song. I say it's a good song. So I'm just heading over onto uh, YouTube right now to find the double Virgo version. Yeah, I, I listened to that other version the other day, actually, yeah. you're talking about it, uh, just to check it out. And, uh, yeah, it's just amazing how that song could just fit into that 70s style that they were doing. Yeah, and it's um, so totally 70s style. I mean, <laughs> and, and we mentioned it earlier, what, what effect do co-writers have on Gene material? you know, molding it and refining it and what could have been done with this song had, say, Bruce been given, you know, you know, Gene, Bruce, uh, Bruce helped Gene out on this song. It's not quite there. We see what Double Virgo did with it and completely, you know, hits it out of the park. Um, Daniel. 
I also have to say that it's such a shame that that guy, it seems like it's the same guy playing every part, mm -hmm. uh, that he didn't do any more Kiss covers. We should get that guy to get do some more Kiss covers from the 80s and see what he can come up with. Because I'm totally with you on that one, that uh, I love the way he brought in like a cowbell and... Uh, yeah. Uh, also, the Ace solo was kind of a cool thing to add, uh, and I think uh, you—you're not the only one, uh, Julian, who, who was uh, affected by that performance. And I think a lot of you know old-time Kiss fans, got, you know, started to respect that song a whole lot more. And that's all we have to thank that guy who did that. I'm not sure who he is, but. He did a great job. They need to bring him in for the... If they do another album, they need to bring him in as a, an advisor or something. You know? Yeah, yes. I mean, whoever that guy was, and I'm sure some people out there know it, the creativity of that video. That If, if I'm going to say today, go out and watch any one video uh, on YouTube, go and watch that just because you will smile. You will see the, the soul of Kiss, of 70s yeah. Kiss, was still alive and well in the 80s on, at, on Asylum buried deep within that song is the beating heart of 1977. Mark? Yeah, I mean, I think what everybody said is pretty much what I'm going to echo anyways. I mean, initially when I heard it, it was, you know, decent song. Nothing to write home about, but it was okay. But again, when that burn came out on YouTube with him, I, I mean, it, it just opened your eyes again to the song itself. I mean, just to realize what a little bit of changing in style and a little bit of change in like the structure to song or the playing of it uh, can do to make it sound that much more better. I mean, it's it definitely definitely more catchier now in, the, in that style, and I, and I really liked it. I mean, it's and it just seems that sometimes that's what it takes. I mean, you take a song that maybe in the past you never really just, like dug too much, and sometimes when a band brings it back out and plays it with other people or with new members, sometimes they put something new into it, and all of a sudden the song that you weren't too hip to suddenly becomes a song that you like better. I mean, a prime example of that is when Kiss started bringing back I Was Made For Loving You, and they started doing it a little bit more heavier, I all of a sudden it became a song that I wasn't so, that I didn't like so much, so it became a lot more of a song that I dug more now all of a sudden when they started doing it that way. You know, and I could see... You know, that the song itself is good, it's just how they perform it that makes the difference, right? So I think this is another example of a song that's in that same bracket. I mean, if, when this guy did his version of it, suddenly people were more into it and enjoyed it a lot more than the original. Yeah, that, that's, that's a really cool way of looking at it. All right, let's get into Paul Stanley reinterprets Led Zeppelin's Black Dog, which is a reinterpretation of Willie Dixon or John Lee Hooker. Um, Radar for Love. Or Radar Love. Is it Radar for Did I miss Radar for Love. Radar for Love. Oh, I found a typo on the website. Thank you. Um, this is my least favorite song on the album by far. And I, I always find myself amazed when I say that a Paul Stanley song is a least favorite because I've usually been kind of a Paul Stanley fanboy and always bashed on Gene songs, but Radar for Love is drivel uh, for me. doesn't do a thing for me. Never liked it. Never have. I never skip it, but it's, it's just one of those, it's filler. It's blah. It's meaningless. It meanders. It's nothing. Mark? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's one of those songs for me as well that, you know, 
when it comes on, I kind of get to that point in my mind where I realize the record's kind of coming to an end now. And uh, it almost seems like at that point they were, you know, maybe running a little bit out of ideas or steam. But um, who, who's to say, though, what, where in the writing process this was written? I mean, it doesn't mean necessarily because it's at the end that they wrote it last. It could have been one of the first songs they wrote. Who knows? But um, it, it's, it's just very nondescript. I think that's the thing to it. I mean, for me, it's not horrible. It's not great. It's not, and to be honest, it's just a song that I just don't really remember too much. Just that's how catchy it is to me. Not very, you know what I mean? It's like if somebody mentions, asks me to talk about a song from Asylum, it definitely won't be this one, right? So, um, yeah, and I, I just think that it's, like you said, probably one of the more weaker songs off the record. Yeah, and I think you said it nicely. It's not memorable. You know, when it comes on, I, I can't even be bothered to reach over to press skip on it. So, Daniel. Uh, well, yeah, I'd say it's my least favorite Paul Stanley song on this album. And uh, mostly because I'm only thinking about Led Zeppelin when I'm hearing it. No, it's, it sounds like black, some sort of lame version of Black Dog or something, you know. And uh, yeah, I guess you can pay homage to, to, to your idols once in a while. So mm -hmm. I think you, you can do that, but it's not a good song. I'd give it like nothing. It's not terrible, so I'd give it like a five. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 not as bad as some things could be. So, Ken. Oh. Yeah, this is my least favorite song on the album, also. So, yeah, if I want to listen to Led Zeppelin, I'll put on the Led Zeppelin album. I'm not gonna. Yeah, not not not. This, wanna... this was a reach for Paul to to write this kind of song. I guess. Uh, I guess it's just an, yeah. It's it's a tribute in other words you know, yeah and, and it took him and Desmond Child to write this that's that's the surprising part really <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's a yeah please favorite for me so even Desmond Child has a bad day all right final song uh all night and you know what the video had girls in it <laughs> there's the there's the 14 year old me um uh, rising to it again you know it was those girls in the video and and who was it at the beginning was it paul or eric peeking through the blinds and um paul coming down the stairs with his freaking sailor's navy cap um yeah 14 year old me love that video 40 something year old me cringes at that one um while i still like who wants to be lonely i just cringe at uh, all night thinking also that it took Jean Bouvard, Desmond Child, and Paul Stanley to come up with a All Night is just one of those head-scratching moments of, yeah, it's chock full of innuendo, yeah, it's a fun track, it's musically really cool, I think, um, but, <laughs> no, doesn't work anymore, but was fun back in the day. Ken? You're muted. I can't hear you. Sorry, you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah, back in the day, it was better for me uh, than um, It's Okay Now. Uh, I wrote, it's a good song, uh, but not my favorite, but it's, it's you know, it, it's a good song. Um, but, uh, yeah, the video of that is, it's hard to, hard to watch. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> so, 
but I, I like the song. What did 1985 you think of that video? No one played it, so... Uh, I'm just trying to remember. Uh, you know, I just thought it was cool. Any new video with Kiss coming out at the time, it was just, you know... That's all I wanted to really all see. Of the video, the all of the videos at the time were pretty cookie-cutter, though, weren't they? I mean, this was David Mallett, I think, directed yeah. this one. So he did so many videos by so many bands, all using, essentially, similar styles. So, Same thing. Yeah, it, it, we're going to do the the video with the two girls. Oh, we're going to do twins. Yeah, okay. <laughs> all right, we're going to have twins in this one, because this is Kiss. we got to have double the girls. Right. Daniel, Let's bring John Holmes into this video and we'll really succeed. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, what the hell are we thinking? But, but um, it's, you know, it's, it was like that back in the day. And the problem I think with the videos is that Tears of Falling really seems like they have worked on it and tried to come up with a few, you know, things that will be kind of cool. But the other two videos are like the same video almost, you know? If you watch, if 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 those were following each other on MTV, and you looked away for a brief moment, you wouldn't notice that it was a new video. There's nothing that stands out. It's like yeah, put all the girls we can find in the video, uh, make Jean look sexy, and fail miserably. Yes, they, no uh, no budget's going to do that. <laughs> and so uh, the videos, those two videos, uh, wants to be lonely and uh, all night. Uh, Terrible, but uh, Tears of Hope still kind of works for me. Yeah, so they probably ran out of budget. Simple yeah. as that. They they spent it all on the trees and the volcano. Mark. Well, honestly, um, I actually have a soft spot for this song for some reason. It's not obviously the most you know, you know, technically astute song ever written, but I mean, there's just something about it that just brings me back to, again, to my high school days. And it just it's just one of those kind of party-ish kind of, you know, have a couple of beers with the guys and it's just kind of laughing over it kind of thing. You know, it, and it's just, it's a really simple chorus. One that you can remember, it's a juvenile. But I mean, when you're 15, 16 years old, you kind of think it's cool probably at that time, you know. You know, and girls walking around with these you know, these, these nurse, nurses pushing the beds there around, you know, it, it's it's tacky, but I mean... But like again, when you're young, you think it's kind of you know, you know, right yeah. up your alley. But I mean, now, now you, when you look back at it, you just think it's ridiculous. But it, it, but the thing is, I, I always thought the song was pretty catchy. I mean, for a, such a basic song, it is a catchy song. It, you know, Bruce does some pretty good stuff on it. It's probably one of his more simpler songs that he's done on the record. But I think that that was the whole point of the song. They were going to the end. And it always seems that when they come to an end of a record, you know, even like a, like Rock and Roll Night or something, they, they put something simple at the end just to keep it, you know, upbeat and party-ish. And, you know, just something simple to end it on, you know. And I think that's a, an example of that. I, I would also say that I enjoyed the song in, in itself. I just wish they would have called it something else. You know, yes. and he, he tried to, to play this chord once more on the Revenge album. And some people on the podcast think that I Just Wanna is a good song. That's the same thing, you know. You know I Just Wanna, fuck. Oh, how clever. Yeah, no, exactly. No. Yeah, not, not clever by half. Um but you know this this was the second single released in many european markets so i yeah. guess uh, i guess the us we were somewhat saved i always wondered why there were three videos but only one physical single 
Um, and I was right earlier when I said that Tears of Falling was backed with any way you slice it. In America, of course, in Europe, they were much, much luckier. And I was so happy. That's when so I, fire alive. Exactly. Yeah. So one of one of the Back few one of the few non-album B sides to ever be released. So um, oh, all night backed with Trial by Fire, and I'm just looking at the Dutch copy, and I can't think of a worse cover for a single. They used the back cover artwork and the front cover artwork all in one shot on that one, and that's a little bit um, overloading. Oh, that's the stand-ups actually of the band. Okay, cool. Well, that's worth looking at. So that that is the album. Um, I wouldn't say All Night is a strong finish, but it's dumb, it's fun, it's rock and roll. So it meets all the criteria to be a Kiss song, other than having a rather, you know, unfortunate title. Yeah. So they go on tour, November '85, only North America. Uh, yeah. They they did a promo tour of Europe, um, but. That doesn't really mean much. They didn't perform there. So they kick off, and you've got four songs in the set list. What do we think about those songs? They debut uh, King of the Mountain, All Night, Any Way You Slice It, and Tears Are Falling that first night. And only two of those really survive throughout the tour. King of the Mountain comes back a, a few times, I think. Um, were those the right choices from the album, or do you think they completely missed? Ken? Uh... King of the Mountain, for sure, um, and uh, all, all Night, yeah, I can see them doing it. Um, anyway, you slice it should not have been on there. Um, I, I would have rather been, them done Trial by Fire, and uh, the Tears Are Falling obviously has got to be there. I mean, that's the big, the big song from the album, the big hit. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, they're they're close there. Um, but yeah, anyway, you slice it, I would have dropped. Yeah, that one's a, a bit of a head-scratcher for me. I mean, especially now that we've gone through the album and kind of, I guess we all kind of agreed that there was better gene material on there. You know, what if they'd done Secretly Cruel instead of Anyway You Slice It? It might have actually developed more of a, more of a vibe than it had on the studio version. Yeah. You know, but I guess that's just revisionism, you know, after thinking what Double V did with the, uh, with the album. Daniel, what's your take on the stuff that they did live and what they possibly should have done? Well, I, I would just like to say that uh, I'm not sure, like, if you look at the Gene songs after I Love It Loud, I'm not sure I've, uh, I can think of any Gene song that ever worked live. Can you? <laughs> I, you know, I don't think he ever wrote anything after I Love It Loud that worked out. Unholy, one of the greatest songs on an album. Sounded like a piece of crap live, you know? You make, a, you make a good point about that, though. I mean, yeah. think about that for a second. What song that he made on those middle period translation like that's live? Fits like a kind of work that I, I know that uh, Ken doesn't like it. But, uh, okay. but uh, it's okay. But, but it's, it, I mean, you can switch it with almost any of the Paul songs from the 80s and 90s. So, uh, that's the main point thing for me that I don't know if the Gene songs translates that good into live performances. I'm kind of bummed up there. I can't come up with any Gene song that would work. Well, maybe now that uh, Paul's done Soul Station, Gene will get the urge to rep you know, maybe perform more of his songs live in concert. Um, and we can find out how these translate live. You know, I, I'd love to hear that. 
it's a whole different story. But what if Gene so Gene would do a solo tour, performing his uh, you know stuff from Kiss? What a great club tour that would be! I don't know about that because he'd probably do all his Beatlesque material. No, that would be forbidden. <laughs> <laughs> Then, no, then would anyone go? Because do they want to hear Betrayed or any way you slice it? Come to Sweden. I, I would go. <laughs> it, 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 it is interesting, though, what, about the whole Settlers thing. Because, I mean, they did, like you said, you, King of the Mountain and any way you slice it was there at the beginning, but then dropped. But, I mean, on the Wikipedia, when you look at the whole thing about the tour, they said that other songs that were put into the Settlers, like Creatures of the Night, Strutter, Calling Dr. Love, and for some reason, Oh Susanna was put in for some reason in, into their set list. But it says here also that Black Diamond was only performed once on the tour, February 4th, 86, in California. Right? right. But I mean, that makes you scratch your head, too. It's like, okay, well, why why did they play that song only once? I mean, it was such a staple of their thing. I mean, I understand that they were probably trying to hook people into the new Kiss, right? But, I mean, when you have such a strong song like that, something that you can use to close out a show so strongly, why would you not use it? I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. And, I mean, you know, I like I said, I like uh, All Night and, you know, and Tears Are Falling. And there's obviously one of the best songs on there, so it makes sense to play those ones live. But, you know, I think they could have stuck with King of the Mountain. I don't know why, why that's not wasn't used more often it was a great song it could have maybe even opened the show or maybe even the second song of the set you know who knows right but it's, it, but why they they removed that and you know they put in back the songs that were you know probably played a thousand times like you know like strutter i liked strutter but i mean how many hundreds of times have we heard that song i mean was that really worth putting that one back to kill one of those you know yeah but look at the set list on that first show there were only four songs from the 70s left that's why I think they suddenly realized, holy shit, where is our original music, you know, that the fans are actually coming to see? I, I, I think it was a sudden, sudden amount of worry of all of a sudden we've got I Love It Loud, we've got Under the Gun, Heaven's on Fire, you know, fits like a glove, yeah, okay. War Machine, that, it, the, it, it's completely just... shifted away from, you know, and they only want to play 70-minute sets still, so I can, yeah, I can sign to see them... Not... But why not just kill some of those other ones? Like you're promoting a new record, keep the new ones in there. Maybe dump some of the ones off of Animalizer, dump some of the lick it up, lick it up stuff off. You know, I mean, then put some of those. In. You're not gonna playing one or two songs off the new record doesn't make any sense to me. You're, you're promoting a new album. You know, why not play them to promote it? I mean, I agree with you, Julian, that they should have put in more of the old stuff. But you know, then kill some of the other stuff, like maybe some of the stuff from Creatures or some of the stuff off of. You know, lick it up or something like, or rotate it or something. You know, like. So yeah, it was clearly a new, new uh, way of looking at things for Kiss because if you look back, you know, like Under the Gun and those kind of songs from Animalized, they played that through almost the whole Animalized tour. And you had, what did they play? Uh, Give me more and some stuff when they they were on the Lick It Up tour, and those songs survived, but somehow. Uh, when it came to Asylum, they, they ditched those uh, songs and they really missed out on King of the Mountain. I think it could be could have survived throughout the 80s and the early 90s and worked well all the time. Mark, Mark what was the date you said for that uh, California? Oh, it says here it says here that Black Diamond was performed only once 
on this tour February 4th, 1986 in Daly City, California. That's I thought. That was the concert I went to. <laughs> and they <laughs> played my favorite my favorite kiss song just for me. So <laughs> that's that's why they played it, you know. So yeah, yeah I remember that. Too. Yeah. So the other thing I remember about that is almost I think that was the the, the show where uh, we were waiting outside the uh, the show uh, outside the hall or what do you want the, the the venue, and they had these metal you know they put those metal bar gates yeah you know that you can move around and there's just a whole bunch of people waiting there and I thought I was gonna get trampled it was uh, it was not that long after that who thing you know oh. and people were pushing and crushing to try to get in. Uh, to this concert, and I thought, man, this is going wrong here. So anyway, that I just that was just something I just recalled about that. But yeah, that was the show I went to, so I was glad to see Black Diamond there on the Asylum tour. So Cal Cal Palace, February the fourth, eighty six, reported attendance five thousand six hundred sixty nine of ten thousand. Ouch, you know. But a lot of the tour hit and miss again, like most Kiss tours during that period. Um, you know, I, I think they could have done some other things. They'd had six songs from uh, Creatures debut in that set in 82. It had six songs from Lick It Up, Go Through. and But I understand the balance and that they were shifting away from that. But Tears Are Falling, perfect live. And then, of course, I think one of the other things worth mentioning, and i got to look at the date, um, is the Charlotte soundboard recording from this tour. I think it's one of the few. And I think... A lot of people, when they talk about Kissology 4, would love to have an, an Asylum Pro Shop video in all its yeah. glory yes. with, that, with that massive yeah. Kiss logo in the back with those wonderful, colorful costumes. Um, what did Thomas say the other day? That he had one. Yeah. He has one, yeah. He says he has one. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, uh, there's a lot of things that, you know, kind of happen that people don't expect. We'll we'll have to wait and see. I'd rather they actually get into gear and start releasing some shit rather than telling us what they have. I mean, actually, actually the funny thing is, there's one last little point here. I don't think is important. Maybe not important, but interesting to make is that apparently it says here that on April eighth, nineteen eighty six. Kiss played in Maple Leaf Gardens here in Toronto. Opening act was King Cobra, and they were actually invited to appear on stage to do Lick It Up with Kiss, making King Cobra the first group to ever share the stage with Kiss, which was kind of ironic there you think about it, because I've never seen Kiss do that, like break Hall up another band and do a song with them on stage, you know? Is that Wikipedia? Or is that yeah. Kiss, Kiss Alive Forever? Or is that Wikipedia? That's a Wikipedia, I got that. Okay, I'd look in Kiss Alive Forever on that one. Um... Well, most most of Wikipedia is ripped from that. Touched on that, I think is kind of uh, important when it comes to Asylum. The demos. Mm. There, there are quite a few of Kiss Asylum demos. Have you listened to them, and what do you think about them? Well, they call them Kiss Asylum demos, yeah, but they they yeah. go they go from eighty three, eighty two, yeah. all the way up. Um, so I presume we're talking about shit like a hundred percent Russian roulette. Uh, yeah. What you see is what you get. Um, you know, a lot of that is just Gene and his, you know, 
Monster of all box sets. Well, yeah, yeah you know, four track recordings. It, yeah, not even four track. It's one track in a you know him sitting in a closet. Um, <laughs> yeah, but there's there's a couple that ended up on the album anyway. You know, very few. I mean, I, I'm gonna yeah, pick. Two of them, I think. I'll I'll pick one from that era, and that's nobody's perfect. You know, and obviously they revisit that years later. You know, that's that's really didn't they revisit Russian Roulette as well? I can't remember. Um, so, I mean, are we talking about 2015 or 1985 in, in some cases? I mean, Mark, you're talking about you can't only play two songs when you're promoting a new album. Well, yeah, it's, I, I was wondering if you're talking about now or then. So, so some of those demos from that period, I mean, you're absolutely right, Daniel. You know, they have legs. They were revisited, so at least by Gene. You know, Paul yeah. Paul apparently denied ever hearing them previously. So. Hey, Julian. Sorry to cut you guys off, but I got a message from the hospital, so I might have to take off here. You do what you need to. I think we're just about to wrap it up, so okay. let's let's just um, close this show out as we're at the hour and a half mark. Um, favorite tracks from the album? You got to pick one, Ken. Tears are falling. Mark. King of the Mountain, hands down. Daniel, favorite favorite track. King of the Mountain. All right, I'm going to go Tears Are Falling just because I really enjoyed it uh, live tie. recently. It's a tie. <laughs> Least favorite. Oh, my. Radar for love. Love's a deadly weapon. I'd have to go Radar for love. Yeah, I think I'm going to join you guys on Radar for love. Um, and I guess any last thoughts? I don't have any. You know, Asylum, it, it, it's important to me personally. It still is, always will be. Um enjoy it is it as good as a 70s kiss album hell no but you know is it probably one of the best 80s kiss albums uh the non-makeup ones yeah for me it is it's better than crazy nights any day of the week it's better than animalize any day um i think for the most part i think it's better than the vast majority of drivel that was put on hot in the shade even though that album has its moments too so it's not as good as lick it up so Vinny, you're still winning Gentlemen, yeah, Ken. I'm sorry. For me, it's yeah. Look it up. Revenge are kind of uh, for me like around a tie almost. So uh, I think uh, Asylum would come right after that for me, and then drop off to Animalize and Crazy Nights. I'd say Animalize has a few songs that I would put high. You know, the Paul songs on Animalize I like a lot. Mm-hmm. But Gene stuff is like awful. Gene it's stuff like, brings that album way down. Yeah. Whereas Asylum is Asylum is much more consistent, you know. So yeah. while Animalize has Heavens on Fire, you know, Under the Gun, and Thrills in the Night, which are extremely I good songs. Into the fire, my God. Oh hell yeah, agree. You know, it's just Gene stuff is all dogs. So um, you know, Kiss takes two years off after this. So you know that that is Asylum done. Thirty years. Happy birthday, Asylum, and let's call that a show, Daniel. Thank you for joining us, and I'm glad you didn't get locked out this time. Ken, as always, and Mark, you go take care of what you need to, and best wishes to your father. Thanks, guys. It was great doing this. It really took my mind off stuff, so thanks for doing it. That's cool. And everyone out there, thank you for listening. Find us on Facebook at Kiss FAQ Podcast, or come over to KissFAQ.com and join the cesspit and argue with us about these topics. We'd love to hear your thoughts as well. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. Thank <laughs> you.
Thank you for spending time listening to the KISS FAQ podcast today. All sales are final. There are no refunds. If you like, look us up on Facebook or come over to the KISS FAQ message board and discuss the topic we broadcast today. We hope to see you again.